Right now, though, we are talking more about that decision. Vancouver City Council has decided to go ahead with a pilot project which would involve the building of tiny shelters, 10 by 10 foot shelters that would allow one to two people to live in those shelters. There is a space for storage, but there is no kitchen or bathroom. And the cost of these shelters is what some are asking questions about. Joining me to talk more about this is Melissa DiGenova, NPA Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor DiGenova, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, You voted against this, so why did you vote against this plan? Well, I had originally voted for staff to go away and take a look at at tiny homes. I want to be very clear. I was talking about tiny homes, which aren't tiny shelters, because homes have bathrooms and they have kitchens. Um, But when I saw this report come back, not only was, was I a bit surprised, not to see um, the support and the funding of operations or any complex care and support dollars there um, from BC Housing or the federal government, but that we were going to go ahead and do this not only by ourselves, but these 10 by 10 uh, foot shelters, as you've described, will cost $6,200 a month each, actually um, $6,250 a month each and I, I know we can get a lot more for than than just a ten by ten foot hut without a bathroom or a kitchen in our city for that. So I don't really feel that this is dignified living. But if we were going to have shelters like this, this is an exorbitant cost, and I think we could do a lot better um, for for people who are experiencing homelessness in our city. That's why I voted against it. That number does seem very high, and I know a lot of people are are focused on that number. How does that break down, though? Because it's hard to even imagine how a 10 by 10 foot shelter with no kitchen, no bathroom, has an operating cost of of more than $6,200 a month. Well, the breakdown is, I mean, the the overall two-year pilot project is... Um, $1.5 million. There's a small amount of capital costs, although it is more than it, it technically should be. Um, you know, $46,000, I believe, for each unit to be built. That's capital cost. But the operating cost is what's important. So you take, you take the capital cost, you add it up, and, and per month, per shelter, because this is just a pilot. If this doesn't go well, the city will own these 10 huts. We we don't have any plans as to what, what we're going to do with them afterwards. It's a pilot, as I said, and this is something usually we'd look to BC Housing or the federal government to fund. So each, if if you take uh, 1.5 million dollars over two years, you know, divide that, so that's 24 months. Um, you know, there's 10 of these shelters. It comes down to. $6,250 a month. And I confirmed that yesterday in question period with our staff. And I was floored. And I went out and I looked. For half the price, you could get a one-bedroom, a bathroom, and a kitchen at the Shangri-La with 24-hour concierge service, a pool. Heck, you could get maid service for an extra 300 bucks, and it would still cost less than half of this. And I understand that this is perhaps a group that has complex care needs, but still, I mean, this is not dignified living. I don't think that this is giving people a leg up, but even if we were to do this, 10 people, $6,200 a month. I've heard from residents just over the past day who say, you know, counselor, I can't make that. You know, um, I'm, I'm a, um, I live in, in Vancouver and, and me and my partner, you know, 
together collectively, we couldn't pay that much in rent. I, I'm very concerned about this, Joe. D- does the money go to any uh, kind of support services? Because uh, from looking at the report, so it's going to be given to the society that's going to be running this. Like you said, there are no uh, kitchens or bathrooms in the huts, so those will be communal. Does it go then to support services or other kind of services uh, the people specifically who would be chosen to take part in this might need? Well, it's very vague, and I'd ask that question because I've pushed hard for complex care. I think that it's a piece in our discussion right now about public safety, and when we look at people who are suffering with you know, mental health and addiction issues in our city who are under-housed or who are homeless, what they need. And when we look at that, I'm, I'm willing to consider what that might cost, but staff could not give me an answer other than they'd be able to have meals at the shelter next door that was operated by the same organization and use the washrooms there. But basically, it's a glorified tent because you'd still be walking from outside into a shelter. And for the exorbitant costs that we're looking at, you know, I think be better off looking at, at putting that cost into land and partnering with BC Housing on modular housing where people have indoor bathrooms and have kitchens. And, you know, we've heard from people that they don't feel safe sharing a bathroom um, in SROs already. So why are we pushing people back into that model? I thought we were coming up with a new collaborative model here. But we also need funding partners at the table. So it's very vague as to what the support would be. And when I asked, you know, what part of this is overhead costs to the Nonprofit. I was told that's eighty percent, but I couldn't. Be, they couldn't tell me what those costs were going to, or what kind of care or support that the people staying in these ten, um, you know, huts or um, I can't call them homes because they don't have bathrooms or kitchens. What they're going to get out of this? So I just don't think that it's dignified living here, and I think it's it's definitely putting Vancouver on the wrong track. We could do better, and we need to work with BC Housing. Um, I'd rather see modular housing on that site. We also didn't do an RFP, so there was no chance for other nonprofits to come forward and say, you know, we're going to do this. Um, we'd like to do this. This is the proposal we're going to bring you, and the nonprofit that you know, this contract's been awarded to, they do great work in our community, but they've never run a project like this before. So, you know, I think that's a lot to put on their shoulders. I know that the original idea for this, or there was some inspiration from some other centers or, or tiny home projects that we've seen mainly in the United States. Was there at least research done as to, to as far as what's ha- what's working in those villages in those tiny homes or what's working or what hasn't worked before moving ahead with this one? That's a great, great question. And I asked that yesterday. I said, have you been to Los Angeles, um, San Francisco, Seattle? I mean, uh, you know, uh, President Obama had a housing advisor who wrote a whole report and looked at tiny homes and tiny home villages. I asked if that was considered in this, you know, because the the United States is light years ahead of us in in this way with tiny homes. And I was told, you know, and, and I appreciate what our staff do, but they have too much to do and housing is not their job. So they said that they had spoken to some, you know, some of the staff and, and some of the organizations in a couple of cities, but I'm not quite sure that it, we went into really researching, you know, how a model could work. And I'm concerned that we're actually going to set ourselves up for failure. So I wish I could have supported this, but at, you know, $6,250 a month for a 10 by 10 foot hot you look at what else you can get in vancouver even if it was half that price and we were able to spend half that money 
um, on, you know, services to hire people, um, you know, mental health clinicians or people who had experience, I'd have more comfort here. But right now, I have no idea exactly what all of those costs are going towards, but that's what we know it's going to cost right now. And there's no assurances as to what kind of support these people will get. So I'm, I, you know, I also know that BC housing offers supports in some of their projects at, at, at a, a severely lesser cost than this. So I think we need to work with our partners at the province and the federal government, but I do hope we will get to a place where we can look at tiny homes, you know, for seniors and for other types of housing people who do have mental health and addiction issues even possibly. But I would like to see them, you know, equipped with their own kitchens and, uh, you know, maybe be a little bit larger and a little more dignified. All right. Councillor DiGenova, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, yesterday at the B.C. Legislature, there was a protest against some planned changes when it comes to supports for some children and youth in this province with disabilities. Those protesting say the changes were announced in October, but there was no real consultation leading up to the announcement. Joining me to talk more about this is Michelle Clark and Elena Lawson, both parent organizers of that protest. Thanks both of you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, uh, Michelle, I'll start with you unless unless Elena's more comfortable doing this, but maybe bring us up to date as to what the protest was about. Um, go ahead, Elena. <laughs> okay, no problem. Hi. Um, we were on the lawn of the BC Legislature on November 24th uh, and had a rally that was uh, organized by Autism Support Network at the time. Uh, We thought it was very important to make sure we stayed on the forefront. So uh, six moms came together and started planning a rally of our own. So uh, we were set to be there on February 9th, the first day that they would be sitting and having question period. All right. And the specifically talking about uh, children or group or, or uh, children and teens, younger people with autism and, and dealing with autism, what are the changes being proposed or what are the issues with those changes? So currently right now, um, families with uh, autism children, they, they get individualized uh, funding. So uh, Minister Dean announced in October that that would be eliminated as of October 2025. I mean, I think spring 2025. Sorry about that. And um, that they would be moving to a center-based system. Um, This isn't going to work for most of the families in the autism community. We have spent years building our teams for our children. And the way the center center model is being presented to us, we are going to have to start off at square one. Um, If there's a child who masks, so it's high functioning and, and doesn't show autism traits, they'll be left behind and they will not get the supports that they currently have now. And have you had any response to the concerns when you've raised these concerns about these changes? Um, actually, today we have a meeting with Minister Dean at 2.30. Um, I'm one of her constituents as well in the Esquimalt Machosen riding. And I have been emailing her since, the announcement was made in October. Um, at first, I had a call with her staff. I've always requested to speak to her. 
Um, another time I requested to speak to her as the minister, and I got an email back from the ADM of that ministry. And uh, it wasn't until yesterday that we finally got an email saying she'll give us 20 minutes of her time today. All right. Well, I guess that's something or to, somewhere to start and at least get that conversation. Uh, Michelle, I'll bring you back in on this as well. I know you had a speech that you delivered at the in the front of the legislature yesterday. Can you kind of give us some of the points of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so what I was talking about yesterday and, and some of my concerns are um, specifically with children who are receiving supports now. Um, through the autism funding unit, through the home teams that we've taken sometimes years painstakingly to build to find the right fits for our children. And basically with this announcement, all of that work, all of the progression that our children have been making will be completely and totally wiped out. Um, My daughter, like a, a lot of children with autism, have a tendency to regress when certain things in their routines change. Um, and that's a, that's a huge fear for us. Um, so, you know, to, to have that kind of be taken away is, is, is an extremely scary, scary thought for a lot of parents out there. And have you been given a reason as to why the changes are proposed or why these changes are coming in? Yeah, so from what the announcement was, um, of course, it, it's to open up services and and supports for children with all disabilities in the province. Which us as autism parents, we are we're not we're not against other children having the same supports as our children get. Um, but the model that they're proposing with the hub systems or family centers, as I think as they're calling them now, um, are. From us, from what we've seen and what we've been through for decades, it's just not going to work. To throw some numbers, right now there's 78,350 diagnosed children in the BC school system. That's not including private schools or home learning. Um, There's thousands of other children on the wait list. It's it's just astronomical to think that they'll be able to service and help and, and provide therapies to all of these children within the province. We're, we're doing direct comparisons to the Ontario model, where currently right now there's over 50,000 children on the wait list three years into the program, and that's only autism-specific children. Their numbers they're giving us just aren't adding up. <laughs> and you kind of touched on this as well. One of the concerns being with the, with having a team in place and having something that's working now, I, I, there, there's that concern that if that's taken away, I mean, do you even know what kind of, of negative impact that could have? Absolutely. I mean, I know for a fact that if when her, when my daughter's routines change, even just with spring break and summer and Christmas break and things like that, we see an immediate regression. We see an immediate loss of the gains that we've already had. We see immediate behavior changes. Everything is just negatively impacting their ability to succeed. Uh, you mentioned too that uh, you have a 20 minute meeting or you're, you will be able to meet with the minister. Uh, do, do you have any uh, kind of confidence that this can be changed or that there can at least be tweaks to this rather than going ahead with what's been proposed? I honestly, I'm, I'm so frustrated. I, I don't see, I don't have that confidence, but in the end, I mean, we, we just have to keep pushing forward. We just have to keep letting her know that, that these changes 
won't be beneficial to the children that are currently receiving services and they won't be beneficial to the current, sorry, the children that are currently on wait lists and not receiving services. I'd, I'd like to believe that, you know, the changes will be immediate, um, but it's politics. <laughs> And exactly. It's politics. So even though you're being told or or what's being put out there is that these community hubs will be able to access more people or more people will be able to access them. They will offer up services to more children, to more young people. I mean, it it kind of if you read between the lines, maybe even not that much between the lines, it seems like it's money that it's it's finding a way to deliver these services without costing the government as much as it is now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because as it is now, so, and I think you touched on this, so children under six or families with kids under six, it's it's up to 22000 a year, and then it goes to 6000 after that? Correct. Yes. Right. And, and when that question is put to the minister or put to the government that this is a, a cost-saving measure, what kind of a response do you get? We well, haven't. Yeah. I haven't, anyway. For myself, even to look at it that way, it's frustrating. Because they're, they're not only are they taking the individualized funding away from the parents, where 100% of, of that funding goes to the direct services and, and therapy for our children, they're looking at taking all of that budget and putting it into these centers and systems where there's going to be constant, I mean, they're going to have overhead, they have buildings, they have rent, they have... Um, wages, they have all of the administration factors going into that. So all of that money is going to be cut and not going to the children that it's supposed to be helping. Right, because as it is now, with the money coming directly to the families, then then you spend that money, don't you, on direct services? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, and again, the, the meeting with the minister, what else can you do? Or, or Michelle, I'll bring you back in too. What else as a parent can you do as you look at this? We just, we just have to keep fighting. We just have to keep asking our questions in hopes that we actually get some proper consultation, some meaningful consultation happening where they're listening to us and they're listening to us explain you know what this is going to do to our children in the end and until they're actually willing to listen to everything we're saying there's just going to be no movement and 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 elena your thoughts on that as well um i think um definitely consultation but they need to prove it with their actions as well they can say that they're they're consulting they're listening but um, it's been proven time and time again since this announcement was made that they aren't listening because they keep pushing forward with this uh, with this hub model, and uh, and they're not making any changes or they're just not being transparent about it. Would it would it work if there was a different model that maintained the funding going directly to families, but it wasn't a blanket amount of funding or that the funding was tied to the severity or, or perhaps the needs of the children and the youth? Um, I think so. I think we there's even been discussion about a hybrid model. Um, I know that even uh, the BC Liberals in the House have been huge advocates for us and amplifying our voice and they've even suggested that um there's been suggestions put uh forward to the minister and the ministry and yet uh again they're just 
they're very tight-lipped about what they're doing. So that's scary in its own own right there. So. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time today. And uh, I hope the meeting with the minister goes well. We'll certainly follow up with you. But thanks so much, both of you, for your time. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, if you were out and about on Saturday, you didn't have to be at the nation's capital. If you were around Vancouver, parts of Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, you probably saw some of the protests, some of the convoys, the vehicles, the honking, the flags. And there was also a story that kind of came to light after. And it was a company vehicle that was spotted in one of the protests, one of the very pockets of protests. And the company that was on the vehicle was quick to come out and say we just want our clients and people affiliated with us to know we did not condone the use of our vehicle it was the spouse or somebody connected to an employee that took the vehicle and they came they were very quick to distance their sel- themselves from that particular protest well that's kind of what we're talking about in that if you are an employee or if you are somebody who is affiliated with a company and you are seen at a vaccine mandate protest or if you're seen at a freedom rally, if you're speaking at the freedom rally, even if you don't perhaps identify your affiliation with a company, can you be fired? Well, the answer isn't a straight yes or no, but joining us to talk more about that is Dan Balcaran, Balcaran Associate at Samfiro Tumarkin, LLP. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Are you getting a lot of these questions or people curious uh, if you are involved in one of these protests or these convoys, can it affect your employment? No, I haven't, uh, I haven't encountered these questions yet. We are still mostly dealing with uh, uh, employees who have been terminated or placed on unpaid leave due to refusing to get a vaccine. That's the, the vast bulk of the sort of the vaccine related um, uh, questions that we're getting so far, but but it's it's an interesting question, especially in light of that uh, trucker cyclist story that happened over the weekend. Uh, so, what would you say then to to people who uh, maybe are fearful of that, or have been told by their employers, if you identify as somebody in this company and you're seen at this particular movement, you could face reprimand or you could face termination of employment? Sure, sure. Okay. Well, I think it's important to understand. Um, what flows, so so, uh, termination in general. So an employer can terminate an employee at any time for any reason without cause. That simply means you're going to terminate the employee, but you need to pay them severance. And that severance is is pursuant to whatever their individual tailored legal position is, and it can be as much as 24 months of pay, depending on on the individual. What I think the, the question is really getting at is, can the employer fire the employee for what's called just cause, for appearing at one of these protests or rallies. Now, just cause is is simply a, a legally justifiable way in which the employer can avoid paying severance. Now, the purpose of severance, it's, it's a bad idea for society if you're thrown out in the street with no money and no job. And so the law has evolved this idea of, of severance to tide people over uh, I- until they get a new job. It's, it's like emergency money. Um, and so the law wants you to get severance, but you can get around severance. Uh, employers can get around severance with just cause, but it's important to understand that it's serious and it's rare. And there are three ways to get to just cause. One is um, a conduct on the employee's part that is so egregious that the employer is justified no longer continuing the, the, the employment relationship. Relationship. So that would be your classic, um, you know, you, you assault, you punch your boss in the face or you come into work 
drunk or or you commit fraud or serious crime or theft or something like that. Uh, the, the the second way is a series of uh, ongoing performance failures and an oper- uh, that the employer has provided you clear warning of and an opportunity to correct. So that would be like your classic three written warnings and you're out. And then the third way is just you're altogether a bad employee and, and you've been doing lots of different things, like you're late all the time, you're getting arguments with, with your coworkers and your performance isn't good. And, and so it's called cumulative cause. There's just a basket of things that make you a bad employee, so let's get you out of there. But the longer you've been in a given location, the harder it is to get to that third one. And so appearing at a trucker rally or, or, or a vaccine protest would, could only fall under the first branch. You know, is the conduct of showing up at this rally so egregious that it justifies uh, the capital punishment of a just cause termination, i.e. Uh, not getting severance. And, and in my opinion, just showing up at one of these events, it could not be a just cause termination. You know, the, because in, uh, the law doesn't convict or find liability based on character or uh, political affiliation. You know, the classic example would be in, in, uh, in, in uh, you know, sexual assault cases where, you know, someone's sexual assault history is not relevant whatsoever. The law only convicts or finds liability based on what the law is and what the facts are and the circumstances as applied to law. So, so you know, if, if just merely showing up at one of these events could result in a just cause termination, then what the law would really be saying is that in order to be employed in Canada, you have to have the right political affiliation. And I, I don't think we're at that point yet. But I will say um, aggravating factors can make a just cause, can make it a no severance dismissal. So, so for example, uh, you know, criminal conduct or, or conduct that, that, that really besmirches the employer's uh, reputation. So the example that, that we had talked about earlier, the driver who, who sort of slowly, deliberately made contact with, uh, with that cyclist, uh, that, that would be, for, for me, that would be a just cause termination because the driver engaged in criminal assault uh, and uh, was driving a company truck at the time. So, All right. Would it be even something, uh, I would imagine it would be different to even say if you were caught on news footage in a crowd as opposed to if you were caught in a crowd maybe holding onto a flag with a hate symbol on it? Right. So that would be the aggravating factors, right? So if, if you were doing something that impugned or, or, or besmirched the reputation of your employer enough, then, then certainly you can get there. So, you know, I, I mentioned assault earlier, your example with the flag, uh, maybe that, that might be enough to do it. But, but merely just being at one of these rallies, I, I, I don't see it. And what if you don't identify yourself as an employee or there's nothing really about you that would connect you to a certain company? Maybe somebody else does that. But if you don't do that, is there an argument to be made that you're, you're simply out as a private citizen? You're out doing something on your private time? Yeah, I, I think that over time, the law has sort of recognized that, that there is an element of extension into the private sphere of you know, the reputation of the employer and you as a, a member of, of that particular employer. You know, there, there were cases going back 10 years where people have said things on news cameras as a joke that got them fired for just cause. Um, and, and so, you know, do I know who that person is? No, but we have social media and we can identify these people now. So, so I, I think if, if the sin is egregious enough, then it, then it will, and it is on camera, then, then yes, I think it, it would be a just cause uh, termination um, but it, it depends on the nature of the sin that is that that occurs, right? So just showing up at a rally wouldn't necessarily 
be a just cause termination. But I, I just want to add one little cautionary note to, for everyone out there. Um, that doesn't mean your employee, like just because it's not a just cause termination doesn't mean your employer is not going to fire you, right? They, they might just fire you and pay you out severance, or you might be in a dog fight over that severance and have to get a lawyer. Um, but, but, you know, they, for most people out there, losing your job is a catastrophe. You know, if, you, if you've been in a, a, a given job for 20 years and you're 53 years old and you have no university education and you're making $80,000 a year, you can't lose that job. So you have to be very, very careful about, um, about you know, yes, you might be entitled to severance, but severance is not necessarily a, a, an equal replacement to having a job that's going to get you to retirement. Right. And, and interesting, because that was one of the questions that came up as well, that you might have a stance that isn't in line with your employer. And, and sadly, we've seen so much division over vaccination. So if somebody is a strongly opposed to vaccination, maybe goes to rallies and, and talks about that, it's obviously not illegal. People have a right to their opinion. But like you're saying, an employer could terminate you uh, without cause, pay you severance and be done with it. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the severance is going to be a poor substitute. I mean, again, it can be quite large. You know, 24 months is nothing to, to sneeze at. But, but it, for a lot of people who are just trying to get to retirement or, or paying their mortgage or what have you and, and need certainty in their life, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a, 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 a poor substitute for sure. Uh, and uh, wanted to just touch on base with you again. You mentioned off the top what you're still getting questions about or a lot of questions are the, the mandates as far as, uh, I guess, is it terms of employment that include vaccination? Are you still getting a lot of questions or people that are uh, either unclear or not, uh, not wanting to go along with that? Yeah, no, what's happening is there's a certain percentage of the population that is refusing to get a vaccine pursuant to their uh, employers' vaccine policy, and then they're losing their jobs, or they're putting on a state of unpaid leave, and then and then they're bringing claims for for severance pay, the severance pay that they're entitled to, um, unless there's a government mandate. So if there's a government mandate, like a provincial health order saying you work in X Y Z sector and you have to be vaccinated to work in that sector, uh, the the effect of the mandate is to is to effectively extinguish your right to severance. But the vast majority of, uh, of, of people in the province are, are provincially regulated, not subject to a mandate, you know, as opposed, you know aside from health care workers and, and, and uh, long-term, long-term care workers and a few other and government workers and a few other niches. Most people are, are not covered by a mandate. And therefore, if they're, they're terminated for, uh, uh, because their employer has, has rolled out a brand new um, vaccine policy and they don't get the vaccine, then, then they have a right to severance. All right. And, and, when, and, so, and the, so that's still the kind of the, the bulk of the calls or the questions about this that you're getting? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, people, the amount of people who, who are not getting vaccines and are losing their jobs over it is much, much greater than the people, the amount of people involved in these protests and, and specifically the amount of people who are involved in the protests who are losing their jobs because they're involved in the protests. Notwithstanding, it's the protests are, you know, the cutting edge issue in, in news story in Canada right now. So they're they're going to get all of the, the media play, but but the size of the pool is, is greatly different. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. I really appreciate it. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for having. Me.
Well, if you have been in the market for a new car, a used car, you may know that prices are up and it's not easy in many cases to find exactly what you are looking for. So we're going to take a look at some of the findings of the autotrader.ca releasing the latest price index. It reveals car shopping and pricing trends in the final quarter of 2021 and what it calls unprecedented change in the market, ending with a record high price. The price is reaching more than the 50K mark for the first time ever. Joining us to talk about this is Barris Akurek, Director of Marketing Intelligence at autotrader.ca. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. These numbers seem a little bit a little bit out there as far as the pricing. So when we say that the this reached over fifty k for the first time ever, are we talking about kind of the the average prices or the prices when we're looking at used vehicles? You're looking so when we say um, uh, prices are up by uh, when you said it's fifty thousand dollars, we were talking about uh, new cars. So that's the average price of a new car. Uh, in Canada, so at the end of December, it was $50,758. And for used cars, uh, the situation is uh, similar. Uh, obviously, numbers are uh, lower at $33,240, again, for the end of December. And on a year-over-year basis, we're talking about almost 35% increase uh, for used cars and uh, 12.7% increase for new cars. I mean, both of those numbers are huge as far as increases, but let's take a look specifically at the used cars. So the average price of a used vehicle, again, in the final quarter of last year, went up 34.5%. Doesn't that seem like a really high jump? I mean, this, it's, it's gone up by quite a bit. There's no doubt about that, and there's a, a reasons for it. So uh, if, I, if you'd like me to explain it briefly, um, you know, the, we, we usually look at it from the supply and demand uh, framework perspective. And when you think about the, the supply side of things, I think it's no secret that there is an uh, ongoing chip shortage, which impacts uh, new car production and new car and used car uh, sales. They go hand in hand, right? So if right. you want to buy a new car, Usually, 70% of the time, on average, you have a used car to trade. And so they go hand in hand, and therefore, both markets are impacted. So, But on the demand side, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have been seeing an increase in uh, consumer demand on vehicles. And it's uh, mostly because of the decline in interest in public transportation and ride-sharing services. So consumers want to be a little bit more safe and and, uh, healthy for obvious reasons, and uh, they're intending to buy uh, cars rather than taking these services. So do you anticipate that we might see that shift back if we get to a place where people are feeling safe again, taking transit, or maybe they're not having to commute as much because they're working at home or that? Might we see more used cars coming back up for sale? So, uh, I mean, that's that's a good question. I don't I don't have a, um, uh, a exact answer for that. But what we see and what we hear in the market is that even when the pandemic pandemic uh, goes away, uh, I think these uh, some of these behaviors uh, will will stay with consumers. So I'm sure there's some increase. There's going to be some increase in public transportation and ride sharing services, and some consumers will. And want to walk, bike, or whatever. But overall, 
based on what we've heard from the market through research and analysis, is that these trends uh, will not um, revert back to where we used to be uh, pre-COVID. All right. The the findings as well. Interesting when looking at savings and what people are spending on. So in the release that autotrader.ca put out saying that the Bank of Canada has put out the idea or put out that number that Canadians have saved about 100 million or sorry, billion with a B dollars during the pandemic and more research showing that uh, was it 63 percent of the people that were questioned said they were able to save a little bit of money and then to use that money to purchase a vehicle right so we uh what we did was we went back and looked at household savings rates uh and then up until covid uh, going back 25 years up until covid uh the the rate was around 2.8 percent of savings rate and once the pandemic hit this went up to 28 percent so almost one third of the money your disposable income uh were on average uh, stayed in your savings account. So uh, after that, it's declined because there was a quite a bit of uh, uh, spending on home renovations, some debt payments and whatnot. So by the end of uh, last year, Q4, we are looking at 11.1% uh, savings. So it's still pretty high. Uh, so Bank of Canada, as you suggested, they're estimating that this is around like $100 billion. And when we took this insight and then uh, went back and did some research to understand the impact on the automotive industry, and uh, most of the uh, people who are intending intending to buy a vehicle in the next six months, they said that they would uh, use uh, some of these extra savings uh, to purchase a car. And furthermore, those who will buy a car, they're, uh, they're thinking of buying a little bit more expensive car because they have this additional money. So therefore, uh, we are seeing what we are seeing in the market. Uh, it's uh, interesting finding, too, uh, looking at the number of people who not only were planning to buy a slightly more expensive car or vehicle, but upsizing when it comes to size as well. You found a lot of people, it looks like, are going, if to, if they can, to an SUV or even pivoting to a bigger truck. Yes. Uh, so this is, I mean, this uh, seems to be a little bit more uh, accelerated uh, uh, because of COVID. But we had been uh, seeing this trend moving away from cars and sedans for a while. Um, so the expectation in the market is that uh, there's going to be less and less cars and sedans will be in the market and more larger vehicles. It's just uh, COVID has uh, accelerated it because, you know, obviously, if you want to travel with your family, uh, you might want to, if you have the means for it, you might want to drive an SUV or a pickup or what have you. To do, uh, to do what you want to do. Uh, you mentioned the chip shortage, and we've talked about that before as well, and the problems that's creating with the supply. Is that continuing, or do you see that continuing for the foreseeable future? We believe that the worst is over, Jill. Um, so um, we've already seen some improvement in inventory, uh, both on our side and in production. Um, so by the end of last year, so it's not going to happen overnight. So nothing's going to, you know, there won't be a million cars in the market by in the next, next, uh, <laughs> you know, month or two. It's going to be gradual. Uh, so we, we think that there's, a, there's an improvement. So it might take a while for supply to catch up to demand because, as I said, there's quite a bit of demand in the market right now. And once that happens, um, 
we'll uh, we'll probably see some sort of stabilization or normalization in prices as well. Right. So, and again, I wanted to touch on that. The average price of the used vehicle, again, going up 34.5%, sitting at just north of $33,000. So do you think that will change? Are we going to see a correction there? I mean, again, I I wish I had the crystal ball to tell you what's going to happen next. But again, production is improving. uh, And once there are more cars, there's no reason as to why they wouldn't uh, correct. And what, and again, I know this might be a crystal ball, but if people are looking at this and maybe they're considering purchasing a new vehicle, trading a vehicle in, maybe trying to find that used vehicle, is it better that they kind of wait a bit until things, like you said, to the, the worst is over with the chip shortage and we'll see things starting to get better? Or, or is it still kind of, I mean, there's going to be people buying and selling cars, but, but what kind of, I don't know if we can kind of tell where the industry is going from here. Yeah, no, there's, uh, so we have over um, almost 300,000 cars on the site and we have tools available uh, that shows whether the listing has a great price, good price, fair price or above average. And when I look at it, I'm a car enthusiast myself, so I look at the site on a daily basis. So there are tons of deals, uh, good deals to be had. So um, if you're in the market, if you're looking for a car, uh, again, do your research, understand the market. Make sure that you know what you're looking for, the price range, what you, what budget you have. And uh, there are tons of cars available out there for sure. All right. Barris, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. Of course, anytime.